The following audio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. Our interviewer, Jill Welly, was paid to participate in this podcast. Welcome to Just Listen, Voices of PK Deficiency. I'm Amy Board, one of the producers of the show, and we have a treat of an episode for you today. Before we get started, don't forget to follow us in your favorite podcast app if you haven't already. Most importantly, share the show with members of the PK Deficiency community and those who you think might benefit from and enjoy it. If you'd like to learn more about PK Deficiency and see resources to support people impacted by PK Deficiency, visit knowpkdeficiency.com. That's K-N-O-W-P-K-Deficiency.com. You met Jill Welly on episode one of the podcast. Jill is living with PK deficiency, and today she speaks with Dr. Sarah Hewins, Chief Medical Officer of Agios. She's interested in how clinical and drug development works, and I bet you are too. Let's listen in. Hello, Just Listen Voices of PK Deficiency listeners. This is Jill Welly, your guest interviewer. It's our honor to be leading today's conversation with Chief Medical Officer of Agios, Dr. Sarah Hewins. My goal today is to get a better understanding of how clinical and drug development works in private kidney sufficiency. Dr. Hewins, I appreciate you joining me to help me with that. Thank you, Jill. I'm happy and excited to discuss this with you today. So to get started, Dr. Hewins, I understand that you've been leading Agios' clinical programs in genetically defined diseases for the past two years and were promoted to chief medical officer in September. So I'm curious to know about your background in medicine, about how you got started in PK deficiency, and about transitioning into such an important role at Agios. So do you mind taking a couple minutes to walk me through all of that? Sure, Jill. Thank you. I would be happy to. Um, So I guess I'll start with my background in medicine um, and my accent. Let's go there first, maybe, because as you'll hear immediately, uh, I do have an accent. So I was born and raised uh, for the most part in Belgium. So I speak Dutch at home or Flemish. And that's where I actually went to medical school in Belgium, to the Free University of Brussels. To be honest, in medical school, I truly loved learning about everything and anything. And so I I had a hard time sort of settling down on a specific direction on what I wanted to do after uh, completing medical school and picking a residency. So that sort of happened by fate and chance because I, I ran into the chair of neurology in the hallway and he, he asked me, he's like, so did you finally settle on what you're going to do? And I, I, you know, really being intimidated by, by this professor of neurology, I said, Neurology? It kind of flew out of my mouth like that. And um, so that was how I started the process of actually getting into the neurology residency. I went through all the interviews and all of that. And then I got accepted to that. And so neurology is the speciality that focuses on the brain and the spinal cord, the nerves, the muscles, things like that. And so he, he was just a wonderful, wonderful teacher and an amazing mentor. And he felt in order to be a good neurologist, you really needed to understand all of medicine. And so he was very, very focused on us knowing 
um, you know, being very well schooled in internal medicine, but he also believed in Belgium that because it's a country where we speak multiple languages, that we had to go our first year of residency to another hospital that was uh, a French-speaking hospital. So I was trained at a Dutch-speaking university and then had to go to a French-speaking hospital to be fully immersed in the other language because he felt that that was very important to be able to take care of patients. And so I was sent to this inner city hospital in Brussels in a French-speaking environment. And, you know, it was very scary in the beginning and it, talking about being pushed out of your comfort zone. That was definitely one of those moments. Um, but I'm forever grateful for that experience because I learned so much in that hospital, not only from just immersing yourself in a different language, culture, but medicine as well. There was so, it was very, very different from the other hospital that I had trained off, uh, trained in originally. And so I was, as part of those rotations, I was um, sent to an HIV and AIDS ward and a tuberculosis ward, where my interest in infectious disease also started to take, you know, shape. But also there, I rotated through the hematology and oncology ward. So that's where I first, beyond like the theoretical learnings of medical school, got into contact with patients with hemolytic anemias. Now, that first year, you rotate quickly through those different services. So after that year, I actually went back to my university hospital to continue neurology. And then by um, I ended up actually, again, sort of by faith in the U.S. because my husband, he was like, let's go to the U.S. I want to go do a fellowship there. And I said, okay. So at that point, I wrote a letter to the person, the chair of neurology at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center here in Boston, because that's where my husband was going to be at. So I just wrote to him and explained my situation and said, like, look, here is me, neurologist, like, what can I do? And he gave me a bunch of different options. And he told me that there was a fellowship, a neuro HIV, neuroinfectious disease fellowship. And I didn't even know that was a possibility, right, at that time. So when I saw that, my I put all my eggs in one basket and completely went for that because it was, for me, really amazing and an, an amazing opportunity to be able to merge that neurology interest with that infectious disease interest that I had developed in that other uh, hospital. And so that's how I ended up in the States. And then I worked on a very specific disease. disease. My research was on a disease called progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, which is a viral illness Um very rare, um, but that research and then a, another program that I did, which was a collaboration with industry, really got me um, interested in what the industry was doing to help find treatments for diseases. And, and so I, after, after completing that program and then deciding that we were going to remain here in the States, I decided to jump and make a move to industry. And because of the research that I was doing on that specific disease, I first ended up in a company called Biogen and then moved through many, many different roles within that company, working on a variety of different diseases um, for many years. I think the common theme here was the majority of these diseases had a very big unmet need and it's been an amazing journey to be able to contribute to trying to drive change there and trying to provide treatment options for people living with 
you know, diseases where there was nothing. But then how did I end up at Agios? That was because of a former colleague of Biogen who actually was working at Agios. I had coffee with her and she was talking to me about Agios and what, you know, people were doing there. And then she was talking about pyruvate kinase deficiency and where the program was, was at. And so I... I really started exploring that and was so impressed with the people at Agios and, you know, how driven they were, like the science that matters. And then the state of the program, looking at the data of the phase two program for PK deficiency, I thought that there was something that was going to move meaningfully forward and make a difference um, for patients with pyruvate kinase deficiency. And then indeed, I, I, I became the chief medical officer in September after the former chief medical officer retired. Um, and so that has been an amazing journey as well. Uh, you know, drinking from the fire hose is an understatement, I guess. Um, but I feel, you know, very fortunate because, I, like I just mentioned, the people at Agios are very driven, very motivated, very... Um, very eager to bring change and that in a way makes my job easy and a pleasure to be in because it's really fueled by everybody in the company to you know to try and make these changes and now a word from our sponsor agios pharmaceuticals at agios we're passionately committed to transforming the lives of patients with genetically defined diseases including pyruvate kinase disease we're proud of our innovative investigational therapies and our focus on accelerating and expanding our genetically defined disease portfolio. This provides Agios with the resources required to optimize the development of our promising investigational therapies and ultimately enables the greatest overall positive impact for people battling these conditions. The patients and families who are counting on us need extraordinary science, and they also need people with extraordinary hearts. At Agios, we have both. Our work to discover and deliver new medicines is personal. To learn more about PK deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. That is wonderful. Thank you for sharing. Personally, I am grateful that you're here doing this research and part of the team because it impacts me directly, <laughs> having PKD. But let's start by talking a bit about what investigational clinical trials are. Can you give us an overview on how clinical trials work? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, before a drug can be prescribed in, in, in clinic, a therapy basically needs to go through several steps and several types of clinical trials to make sure that we truly understand the efficacy and the safety of the drug so basically all of the good things it may bring, but also all of the potential bad things uh, it may bring, so unwanted side effects. And that is typically done uh, in clinical trials by testing the, the drug that you hope can bring a difference versus a placebo, uh, which is kind of like a, a dummy pill or a sugar pill. I mean, it's not sugar, but, you know, like a, a, a pill that is fake. Uh, so we can actually really measure the difference that it can bring to people living with a certain disease. And you do that in a blinded way so that you're not influenced by things you see in the trial or um, that it's truly looking for a pure scientific answer to help answer that question. 
it's complicated because no one really knows until the end of the trial, you know, how much good versus how much bad it brought. But the way we do these clinical trials make sure that it's properly done uh, via these different steps with, you know, first healthy volunteers being um, going through these trials. And then we have special committees making sure that the trials run uh, properly and safely as well. Very good. And could you remind me again, what is efficacy? Yeah, so efficacy, it's, it's complicated, right? Because it's, it basically tells you how well a medicine works. So it's very important, like in the context of a clinical trial, that you get through to an answer like that. So the way we do that is by looking for an endpoint. So so. For instance, with, in people with hemo, hemolytic anemia, we look for a hemoglobin response. So how much can we improve the hemoglobin that is present? And that is called an, an efficacy endpoint. And that is ultimately what we look at, like how much was that improved in people who took the drug versus people who took the placebo or the dummy pill. And that we only know at the end of the trial because we, we measured that type of improvement at the end of a certain treatment duration. And that forms the basis of what we then submit to regulatory agencies for their review so they can then ultimately judge if that type of efficacy outweighs the amount of risk that a potential therapy can bring. Okay, so does that mean that you're giving people something that might not be safe for them? We've touched upon it a little bit, but it's important to understand that before ever, like a drug goes into any person, uh, medicines are researched in the lab first, and then it goes on to animals, and then there needs a clearance by the FDA and by other regulatory agencies to before we begin any clinical trial. And then typically, um, and that is done so that we understand already what happens in a before the clinic space, so that then when it moves into clinic, we first start with people, healthy volunteers, typically, people who don't have the disease to understand um, how much we need to give for, from the drug, how much people can tolerate of a certain dose and things like that. And then we move on to these other trials in which we start measuring efficacy endpoints in, you know, in patients who actually have the disease. And so we start with smaller defined populations to look at that first, to then go into the bigger programs and expose more people. So it's as we go along, we learn more about the drug so we can better inform uh, people, but it's it's important, right? You always you always need to understand so you can make like a, a a call for yourself, like how much good and what potential bad can happen. It gives a full picture. Yes, great, got it. Thank you. And and so is this what you did with Agios's PK deficiency program, like finding out how well the medicine might work and making sure that it's safe. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So it starts like it really starts all in the lab first. Um, so we like through the lab, actually, we should spend a little bit of time there because I think through the lab, um, we really pioneered the development of what we do, uh, do like pyruvate kinase activation, right? 
um, for, for this medicine, but for an entire class of medicines. And then we did indeed effectively run for um, this pirate kinase activator, a healthy volunteer study in which we did that dose finding, looked at the first, uh, how well people were tolerating it. Then we went on to a phase two, which we call drive PK, to further understand how the medicine works. And then we just uh, completed our phase three studies in uh, people with PK deficiency, the, the activate and activate T studies. And so the phase two program is completed. The phase three program is completed, but we are still running these long-term extension studies on those uh, on those trials. So those are still ongoing. And so that means we continue to generate long-term efficacy and safety data uh, in people who have been you know, taking this drug now for a long period of time. And so one other thing that I think is important to highlight here is that I mentioned the phase three program. So for PK deficiency, you know, there's a difference in how many transfusions are needed by specific people. So the way that the pivotal trials were um, run was that one was actually focused more on patients who did not need regular transfusions. And then the other trial was focused on patients who did need regular, uh, you know, regular transfusion. So we could evaluate the impact of metapivat in across uh, across the population uh, of living with PK deficiency. And so it's those data of activate and activate T that formed the basis for the filing um, that we've submitted for regulatory review in the United States and in Europe. So this clinical program is for adults with PK deficiency, but Oftentimes, like myself, we were di- a lot of people are diagnosed with this disease when they're kids. Uh, what about them? Yeah, no, absolutely true. So typically, though, it's we first study something in adults and then we move on to children because children are, you know, they're even more fragile, right, than than, than adults and. And on top of that, we can't really consider children mini adults, right? They have very, they're very different. They're growing. They're, there's a lot of different considerations. So that is why it's really important that we also study how a drug works, like the way I described it for adults just now with all those different steps, that we also study this in children. And so that is actually what Audios is preparing, like is is doing now. We are we're starting to um, have a pediatric clinical program in PK deficiency, and that is then intended to give us the same type of data that we've now generated in adults, but then for children. Um, and so that will give us uh, an opportunity, if those trials are, are positive, to go through the same steps and the same process as what we were doing now for the adults. Well, that sounds like a very big undertaking. So when you're planning a clinical trial like this, where do you start? It truly is a big, it is a big undertaking, and it's and it's why it's so important. We 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 can't really do this alone, right? So we we have a lot of expertise in developing, you know, the clinical trials and then moving them along. But you really want to make sure that everybody has a seat at the table. Um, when we do this. And so that is why it's so important that we, uh, you know, work with the patient advocates, with our physicians, with the regulators 
to um, gather all feedback and try to incorporate that as much as possible in these programs so we can deliver an answer, but also do it in a way that it is meaningful to every everybody here. And so that is exactly what we, we do. So it's a lot of talking, a lot of learning, a lot of listening, obviously, incorporating that when we can or cannot do uh, or accommodate for certain things, making sure that we bring that back to whoever we uh, have been speaking to so they understand what was possible, what was not possible, and the reasons why. I'm very, very grateful for, for instance, when we're talking about the pediatric trials, we were uh, fortunate enough to be able to connect to some uh, mothers of uh, kids living with PKA deficiency and learning to what is important for them, more like some of the the hurdles they are facing when they're thinking about clinical trial participation and things that we aren't thinking of because we're not, you know, we're not in that position. And that makes it so helpful because by listening to that feedback, we can then proactively try to address some of these concerns and try to remove some of the hurdles. Or understanding that if we can't, that this is something that we will be facing in the context of the clinical trial and making sure that things run as smoothly as possible. To give, for instance, a, a tangible example, one of the, the big differences, of course, between adults and children is the how they can swallow pills, right? Little kids, uh, so we have to come up with a different type of formulation and we erroneously thought like when you're 12, you can kind of take a pill like an adult. Um, but that is not true, right? For, for many children, it is not true. And so we now allowed for lots of flexibility on, on the pill so that dependent on preference, they can either take smaller microtabules versus the adult pill because we need to accommodate for preferences like that. And so those are things that you learn by talking to different people and make the trial better from the get-go. Well, thank you. That was very insightful. Um, Dr. Hewins, thank you so much for spending the time with me today and sharing this great information with listeners and the PKD community. I know I've learned a bit more about clinical trials, Agios's work, and the current state of science with PK deficiency. So thank you. Before we finish, are there any final words you'd like to share with the PK deficiency community? Yeah, I think, um, honestly, I speak for all of us, I think, at Agios. We are very excited about, um, you know, partnering with the, the PKD community uh, and continuing to collaborate and, and continuing to work uh, on, on trying to bring a difference here together with all of you. Um, so honestly, it's it's just a, a wonderful experience to be where we are right now and hopefully, uh, you know, continue to, to be able to do so. So I very much appreciate talking to you today, Jill. Um, thank you very much. Yes, same here. Thank you, Dr. Sarah Hewins, Chief Medical Officer. And thank you to Agios for your commitment to PK deficiency community and for supporting Just Listen, Voices of PK Deficiency. To learn more about Agios and the work in PK deficiency, visit nopkdeficiency.com. My name again is Joe Welly, and it's been an honor to be with you all today.
Thanks for listening to Just Listen, Voices of PK Deficiency. Don't forget to hit the follow button in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share the show with members of the PK community. If you'd like to learn more about PK Deficiency and see resources to support people impacted by PK Deficiency, visit knowpkdeficiency.com. That's K-N-O-W, pkdeficiency.com. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.